Please turn in a Bible to 1 Samuel 16. If you're using the Bible in the chairs, it's page 247. We're right in the middle of this series through the book of 1 Samuel, and we're introduced to a new character today. Uh, We find him as a young shepherd boy named David, but we know him. He's going to be the one who grows into Israel's most famous king, Israel's greatest king by far. This is the king to which every following king of Israel would be compared. He's the gold standard. He's mentioned in the Bible by name over 1,000 times. The, the only one, the only name that's mentioned more often in the Bible is Jesus. Uh, and Jesus himself is called the son of David. 12 times in the New Testament. And so this is the great king. Uh, Michelangelo has made this 17-foot statue of David. I'm going to put it on the screen right now. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) The fact that some of you know why, or many of you know why, that would be a little awkward in the middle of our service here, shows how famous that is, how famous David is as well. And you think about his greatness, his legend, the the way that he impacts. We're we're talking about him now 3,000 years later. And it's interesting for us, humanly speaking even, to, to think about how does someone rise to greatness? How does someone get there? That's why we like documentaries and we like biographies. We like to hear about how Michael Jordan in his youth Uh, was cut from his varsity basketball team. Uh, We like to hear these things. We're we're, we're wanting to know, did this person, were they always great? Were they born lucky? Were they born into um, just this greatness? Or did they work really hard for it? And so it's helpful for us. It's interesting to us to think about this. And this is what we have here in 1 Samuel 16 is the origin story or the beginnings of how David began to rise to greatness. What's this doing for us as God's people? What, what do we get from these stories in the Old Testament? It's, it's helpful for us when we're trying to interpret, when we're trying to think, how does this apply to us, to think, what would this have accomplished in the original readers, the original hearers of this? What was the, the author trying to do, writing to the nation of Israel, and, and perhaps this was by time compiled, maybe it's a couple hundred years or a few hundred years even after David. They would have known who David was and some of his legend, but they also look around at their nation, their world. They've had evil king after evil king. Their nation is in shambles. It's headed toward, or maybe they're even reading this in exile. And so the, these difficulties that they're experiencing, and they know that what some of these promises are, but they're also doubting, tempted to just wonder, has God left us? Has God forgotten us? And, and so hearing these stories would have lifted up their hopes, their faith, their trust to see, okay, we've been in hopeless situations before. And we've seen how God acts. We know what kind of God he is. We see how he steps in and provides. And we can trust him that he is going to send us this forever king, this promised Messiah, this rescuer who is, who is promised throughout these Old Testament covenants that God has made with his people. We can trust he is going to fulfill them. And this is what it does for us 
as well as we read these stories. It fills us with hope. God is at work. We don't need to doubt him. And then it helps us know how do we live in light of that God? How do we live in relationship to that God? And so these are the things we see in this chapter. We're going to read starting in verse 1. We'll read through verse 5 here to begin. We're going to see how God provides a king when all seems hopeless. Verse 1 says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul, since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected a king from his sons. Samuel asked, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, Take a young cow with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled, and they asked, Do you come in peace? In peace, he replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Samuel's lost hope. If you've been with us through this story, God's people wanted a king, and he gave them Saul. And, and now Saul has turned his back on the Lord. He started off good. The last sermon I preached here was for Samuel 11, where, where we see this, this sign of hope, maybe, as Saul delivers his people from Nahash, and he, he rescues them. And so it starts off with a little bit of promise, but then quickly he turns his back on God. He's not following God. He's not obeying God. And Saul begins this decline. He's rejected the Lord. And in return, the Lord has rejected Saul. And Samuel's living out now what he promised would happen, what he warned would happen if God's people and God's king didn't follow the Lord in chapter 12. He says, above all, fear the Lord and worship him faithfully with all your heart. However, if you continue to do what is evil, both you and your king will be swept away. And now he knows this is happening. We haven't followed the Lord. And Saul's, Samuel's grieving. He's feeling, he's feeling this burden for Saul. Likely a relationship had formed there where where he has, he has valued this king. He's, he's been in relationship with this king and wanted him to succeed, wanted, this, wanted him to follow the Lord and lead his people right. He's, he's been that voice to Saul, but seeing Saul turn his back and now rejected and seeing the, the downfall that Saul's going to begin. But also, Samuel promised, he said, I'm vowing that I will not cease to pray for you, speaking to the people. And so think about what Samuel's feeling for God's people. That what's this, what does this mean for our relationship with God? What's this, what does this mean? What's God going to do? Are we, has he, is he going to abandon us? And, and possibly some of those feelings of hopelessness were creeping in. God says to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn? It's right for Samuel to mourn. It's right for Samuel to grieve. These are, these are good emotions and responses, but they can get us stuck. We can also get paralyzed in inaction because we're grieving the past. 
And what, what God is saying to Samuel here is, trust me. Trust me and follow me. Don't give up hope. Samuel should have known this. Samuel should have known God had a plan because he's already said it twice. Back in chapter 13, Samuel said, the Lord has found a man after his own heart. In, in chapter 15, Samuel says, the Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today and he's given it to your neighbor. So in his head, Samuel knew God had a plan. He knew God was sovereign, but yet here he was stuck in grief. And we can get there. And, and God overcomes that. He says, get up and go. And then Samuel's got another emotion that is going to, to be an obstacle. He's grieving the past, but then he's also stuck fearing the future. As, as God says to him, go and anoint the next king, Samuel says, I can't. You know Saul. He's going to kill me. He, he will not like it if I go and anoint the king. And so Samuel is afraid of what God's calling him to do. And so he's, he's pushing back. And so God comes up with a plan to overcome that. He says, you're going to go and make a sacrifice. And so if someone asks, you can say that what you're doing there is you're going to make a sacrifice. I want to be careful here as I think about how to apply this to us. I do think this passage is here. This, this part of the story is here for us to see here what Samuel was struggling with because we can easily get trapped there too. Uh, we can easily let grief over the past or fears over the future keep us from obeying God right now here in the present and taking steps forward. But, but I want to be careful because what I'm not saying is just get over whatever you're dealing with. That'd be bad counsel to people. Um, it'd be bad counsel for us to say, just get over it, just move on. But we also can, can know there is a way where we can let our anxieties, we can let our fears, we can let our griefs keep us from trusting God. The hopelessness begins to, to crowd in. Despair begins to crowd in. We begin to then doubt that God has a plan and so here's my question for us. Is there something today that you know God's calling you to do, that you know you should do, you know his word is telling you to do, but you're stuck and you can't do it? And you're not doing it because you're letting griefs or fears keep you from trusting him. That, that step for you it, it might be a step of, I just need to reach out for help. I need to deal with something that's in my past. I need, I need help. I need to get counseling. I need to get therapy. That, that could be a step. That's an active step of, of trusting God and stepping forward rather than just being stuck. God provides when all seems hopeless. And probably we could share testimonies of ways we've all experienced that as well. But then let's look at how does God provide. So he, he here in this moment, he provides by looking at the heart. Let's read verse 6 through 12. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. And he said, certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. 
Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what's visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shammah, but the Lord said, The Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, The Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, he answered, But right now he's tending the sheep, Samuel told Jesse. Send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes, a healthy, handsome appearance, and the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. This is such an incredible part of this story, probably famous part, many of you know. Before we look at some of the details here of how God chose and some of the beauty of this story and the surprise in this story, I want us first to think about how God revealed his own heart through this story. How we see that David is the king God chose. This is the way that the language is in contrast with with how it speaks of how Saul was chosen. God also chose Saul, but he chose him as the king the people wanted. He gave them what their hearts wanted. Look Look at the language that's in 1 Samuel 8. I'll put three of these verses up on the screen. In 1 Samuel 8, 5, it says, Appoint for us a king. In 1 Samuel 8, 18, it says, Your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. In 1 Samuel 8, 22, the Lord told Samuel to make a king for them. And so what we're seeing here is this contrast of the language where Saul is the king after their heart, after the heart of the people, and David is the king after God's heart, according to God's heart. He's he's the kind of king that God chose, that God wanted, that he wanted to put up for his people. And we see that language all through this chapter. We see God's sovereignty, his, his providence, his action, where he is stepping into this situation now and he is going to provide the king that he desires. Listen to this, these, this language, these, these actions that God does. He says, I am sending you. I have selected for myself. That word selected there is actually the word for seen or provided. I've provided for myself. And then he says, you're to anoint for me the one I indicate He's the Lord's anointed. The Lord sees the heart. The Lord hasn't chosen. The Lord hasn't chosen. The Lord hasn't chosen. And then when David comes, he says, anoint him. He is the one. And so all through this, God is accomplishing exactly what he wants here as he is providing this king. It's in this moment, God's intervening. And we see that the way, in the way that he does it, we can trust him. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. His his ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. And so we, as his people, trust him. Trust him to provide, even when we don't see it. Even when we can't understand, he is at work. In a situation that's spiraling out of control, his ways are best. But now let's look at, so that's how God reveals his own heart there as he looks at the heart. But how does God How does God make this choice? By seeing David's heart. By seeing the heart of his brothers. This is is kind of a funny story, if you think about it. Samuel here, he's a man of God. He's he's marching up confidently. God told him, appoint the one that, that I indicate. But he doesn't do that. 
Uh, he, he steps up and he falls into this same trap of looking at the outward appearance. And so Eliab, he sees him. He's like, okay, yep, this is our guy. That's obviously no-brainer. There's something about his stature. It says that here. There's something about his demeanor where Samuel says, this is, this is it. You're right, God. This is, this is going to be the one. And then God says to him, no, I've rejected him. And Samuel you know, kind of gathers himself maybe in his mind and says, okay, well, I messed up on that one. You're right. Now I see it. You're, you're right. Now I see it. This is the one. It's, it's, it's this brother. And then over and over again, these brothers come marching up and Samuel's wrong, wrong, wrong. It says God has rejected. God hasn't chosen that one. God hasn't chosen that one. God hasn't chosen that one. And the verse here that's, that's central in this chapter, verse seven here, it says, God says to him, the Lord, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Listen to this. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. There's something here in the way that God is speaking is to help us know that there is, there is more to life than the externals. There is more to a person than what we see. And Samuel's wrong choice here in, in looking at these brothers and looking for greatness, looking for height, looking for power, um, as, as God then reveals, no, that's not what I'm most concerned about. The Lord sees the heart. And so Samuel says, are there any other brothers? And they say, well, there's little Davy. He's out with the sheep. We didn't even think to invite him to this sacrifice. Uh, we didn't even think that he, he was needed to be here. And Samuel says, Go get him. We're not even going to sit down until he comes back. So they're standing there waiting as they go get David, maybe smelling like pasture um, as he comes. And the Lord says, anoint him. He's the one. There's something about David's heart here that God is exalting. This reminds us of Hannah's prayer. Uh, back in chapter 2, if you want to turn back there, or I'm going to put some of these verses on the screen, where Hannah is, is giving us this psalm or this prayer to our God, and it provides a lot of the themes for what we're going to read in 1 Samuel. And so she says, Do not boast so proudly, or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. Why? For the Lord is a God of knowledge. Actions are weighed by him. And so she's speaking here of something about God, and then she's going to tell us about how how he raises up those who are lowly and brings down those who are proud. The Lord brings poverty and he gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. We're seeing this, we're going to see this in this story as Saul is brought down and David begins to rise. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. So we're seeing this. Think about, think about this. You might be here and you think, I have no gifts that are going to be useful for God. No gifts that are going to be useful for this church. I see kids here this morning. You might be sitting there thinking, I'm too young. 
God could never use me. Or maybe you're not a kid, but, but still, just for, for various reasons, you think of yourself and you just think, I have nothing to offer. And here is another time. All throughout Scripture we see this, where God delights in surprisingly using people that are unexpected. Um, he delights in not choosing the firstborn, but choosing the lowly, choosing the young, choosing the, the youngest and the, the smallest here in this story, and then, and then making them great, doing great things through them. And it, it proclaims his greatness. And so that's an application of this, but I think it's also helpful for us right here to pause and to think about what does this mean for our hearts? We might be falling into some of the same traps as Samuel, thinking what's visible and what's external is what's most important while we're letting our hearts grow cold and, and wandering and drifting and living with hidden sin, unconfessed sin. Kids, you might be tempted to only obey when people are watching, only when your parents see. Only, only do things based on what kind of a reputation it will give you. But pa parents and adults, we know that's not just kids. Parents, even in the way that we interact with our kids, are we more concerned with, I don't want my kid to embarrass me. More concerned with, I want them to not bother me. I want them to not be a nuisance. I want them to, to fall into line. I want us to look like a good family when we come to church. And we're more concerned with the externals than with the heart. Jesus cares about our hearts. He cares about what's inside. He, he speaks of this. Jesus does. When, when he's speaking about the Ten Commandments, he says, it's actually not just enough that you don't murder I'm concerned about your heart of bitterness and anger and hatred toward your brother. It's not enough just to, to avoid adultery. What I'm concerned about is the way that you're thinking in your heart, your heart of lust. Jesus cares about what's in us, our, our affections. In Matthew 15, 7 through 8, he says, Hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied correctly, I'll put this on the screen, prophesied correctly about you, when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We probably feel that. Feel that temptation. Mark 7, 20 through 23, Jesus says, for from within, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and then defile a person. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, one more verse here. Paul says these probing words, so don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts. And I ask ourselves, does God have a heart? Is there, is there some part of us that we're keeping back for ourselves that we're not wanting to give him? 
that we're wanting to stay in control of, that we're wanting to stay hidden, that we're wanting to keep, that we're not willing to bring into the light, that we're not willing to give him because we're, we're more focused on looking the part than on what's going on in our heart. And now let's look at this last point. So God provides when all seems hopeless. God provides by looking at the heart. God provides a king here lastly by sending his spirit. Let's read verses 13 through 23. So Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. Now hear this contrast. Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. So Saul's servants said to him, You see that an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command your servants here in your presence to look for someone who knows how to play the lyre. Whenever the evil spirit from God comes on you, that person can play the lyre and you will feel better. Then Saul commanded his servants, Find me someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. Listen to how he's described. He's also a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and hear this, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul dispatched messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who's with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a wineskin and one young goat and sent them by his son David to Saul. When David came to Saul and entered his service, Saul loved him very much, and David became his armor-bearer. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor with me. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would pick up his lyre and play, and, the, and Saul would then be revealed, relieved. Sorry, Saul would then be relieved, feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Put yourself again into the shoes of an original reader of this. What would this section be doing for you? Why these stories of Saul and what's the author trying to, to teach us? One, I think, is how did David, just how did King David get from being a shepherd and then end up in the king's court as an armor bearer, knowing Jonathan, knowing Saul, knowing Saul's family? And so this is the reason, and it's, it's an ironic reason, it, it's, I think, meant to, to poke a little bit at how, how God is sovereign over these things and how, in a humorous way, Saul is actually the one who invites in and, and brings in David, who would eventually become his nemesis. But, but Saul here has this evil spirit that's on him. Um, this is the way that it's described. And we see the way that he's spiraling out of control here from this point on. Biblical scholars give, give three different possibilities for what this means. What's, what's exactly happening here to Saul? And I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, the, the one, one is that this evil spirit is actually talking about Saul's spirit, his own psychology, his own spiritual state, his, his own mental condition. And it's, so Saul has this this mood or this spirit that, that comes on him and he gets in this mood and, and it's, it's helped by hearing David play this instrument. Others say, no, this is actually, when it says spirit here, it's, it's talking about an angelic being. 
uh, but maybe it's a good angel, um, angel who fears and worships God, but, but is sent here by God to bring harm or bring evil to Saul as a means of judgment. Or, or this third category, that this is actually a, an evil, a demonic spirit here, in the same way, though, being used as God's judgment here on Saul. I think, though, regardless of which of those you're most compelled by, what's most important here, what, what the author's really trying to do is show us the way that Saul spirals from this point on in the story is because God's spirit is no longer on him as a means of judgment. Saul had rejected God, and now God rejects Saul and is bringing this judgment on him that's going to spiral him out of control. And we'll see him showing paranoia, um, showing rage and irrational behavior, and we'll begin to trace just the way that Saul declines from this point on. But but what, what it's meant to do is to show this is all because Saul rejected God and God's spirit then left him. Look at how that's worded in, in chapter 13, or verses 13 and 14. It says, The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that point forward, and the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul. And so here's, here's what we need to get from this. It is the Spirit of God that makes all the difference. That even in the way that, that, Saul, that David was able to be helpful as a means of, of help to Saul during this time, it's because the Lord was with him. And so for us as God's people, for us to be hungry, to, to depend on the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to remember his presence with us matters. His guidance, his leading. What would that look like for us? What would that, what would that look like if we're a people who are Hungry for God's spirit to be directing us and, and using us and working through us. We would be a people who are deeply committed to praying, crying out to him, asking for him to be at work, asking him to fill us and to lead us and to guide us. And we'd be going to his word, wanting to know what he says and, and wanting him to shape us and not holding anything back, but saying, Holy Spirit, guide me. And this is what made all the difference here for David. And so as we... Come to the end of this section. This, how do we come through this passage and not just feel like it's hopeless for us? We're, we're, we're failures. Either I'm failing in that first point of I'm just stuck and I, I, I don't know how to step forward in obedience or I'm, I'm failing because I, I know my heart more than anyone else. I'm failing because I lean on my own strength rather than depending on the Spirit. The answer to that is because of a second David, because of a coming king. Think, think about this with me. Think of the promise of the new covenant. What's the language there when there's this promise that something was going to change when the Messiah would come? Ezekiel 36, 26, he says, I will give you what? A new heart. I will take away your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you. So the very things that are presented in this passage of what we need, we need a, a heart that is following after God. We need his spirit in us. Those are the things God promises to give. And how does he give it? He gives it through his son. What does Jesus do when he, when he calls us to himself? He speaks of his own heart. He's the only one that had a pure heart. 
David, we're going to see that there was something in God's heart where he did follow and fear God and desire, but not perfectly. We know that. David's going to stumble and fall, but there is coming a second David, a son of David, Jesus, who would perfectly fulfill this and live it all out, perfectly live in step with the Spirit. And here's what he says to us in Matthew eleven twenty eight. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in what? heart. Here's the heart of Christ for us. This is the answer for us in this passage. This is, this is how we can follow him and trust in his provision. This is how we can seek to, to give him our hearts. This is how we can seek to follow and be in step with his spirit. It's because Jesus says, come to me. We do it through him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to trust and obey you with wherever we are in our lives. For Samuel, trusting you meant taking a step forward in obedience. For David, trusting you meant waiting, waiting for your timing. Lord, wherever we are, I pray that you would move in us cast all of our hopes, all of our trust, all of our affections on you that we would seek to follow you and give you our hearts. Lord, where we need to confess, where we need help, where we need community to come alongside us and, and help us take these steps, give us courage to take those steps. As we come to your table now, Jesus, thank you for this sacrifice that assures us that you are ready to forgive, that you will give a new heart. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.